Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you kind of bright and early after Thanksgiving holiday. Welcome. Welcome. I hope you didn't eat too much, as Greg would have uh, prescribed, apparently, five pounds extra. Um, We actually have been going through this series on the book of Philippians. And in the series, it's, it's been seven weeks, we've taken, a, we've taken a long path to get where we are today, but I'm going to actually extend that path. We're going to do something that we don't do very often, and it's, it's an ancient practice. It's literally what would have happened with this letter after it was written. So inside the letter uh, to the, the, uh, the church at Philippi, there's actually a guy named Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus actually travels to visit Paul. And in all likelihood, he brought the letter back to his church fellows at at Philippi, and he likely read it aloud to them. So that's what we're going to do today. This is an ancient practice. It's one of those things where you would hear the word, and this was very transformative for them in their time, and I hope it is for us. So bear with me. It's going to be a lot of reading up front, but we'll get there, okay? No one falls asleep. All right. This is the word of God for us today. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now, as always with Christ, will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you only. Let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Suntuki to agree in the Lord Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. <laughs> what you don't know is I'm a better reader than I am preacher, so you got that to go. <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. I didn't quite finish because we're going to go into this final text today, but I think what we need to do is we need to kind of set the stage through all of this stuff and understand where Paul might be going. It's super helpful to listen to the whole book because you can hear these echoes at the beginning that you start to hear again at the end. You can see these themes that start to pop through, right, as you read it more and more and hear it more and more. This is why we always suggest when it's a letter like this, read it 
all in one sitting over and over and over again. Because oftentimes, if you just do like the, the typical, like I'm going to read a chapter or maybe two today and then two tomorrow if I get to it, the problem is, is you're, you're going to miss some of those echoes. You're going to miss some of that understanding. So we always suggest, you know, reading your Bible, awesome. Reading a letter like this in one sitting, it is really what you should do. It's very helpful. Now, we have to go to the Apostle Paul again. Paul is writing this letter, and he is under house arrest in Rome, in all likelihood. That can't be lost on us. You have to realize Paul, Roman citizen, in chains, in Rome, awaiting kind of trial. And he's writing a letter to who? A Roman colony. And this Roman colony has a legacy. They have a history that's powerful, and it provides a a level of pride to them. uh, Philippi is named after who? Philip of Macedon II, who is the father of Alexander the Great. That's the first one. One of the greatest battles in, in Roman history happened just outside of Philippi, the Battle of Philippi. And it was between Octavian and Mark Antony against Brutus and Cassius. And Octavian and, and, and Mark Antony beat Brutus and Cassius, the ones who would, who would kill Julius Caesar. And that guy named Octavian, oh, we find out later on, oh, he just becomes Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor of the Roman Empire. So you see, there's this power that's happening all around Philippi. They have this deep knowledge of their history. So when you are a Roman citizen, you actually, that's powerful and good, and you want to keep it. The the colony itself, it becomes uh, Colonia Julia Augusta uh, Philippensis. It has, Caesar Augustus' name is in the city's name when, when this is written. Right? And, and in all likelihood, because of the battle that had happened just outside of Philippi, Roman soldiers that go to retirement, what they end up doing is they get given land in places like Philippi. So you have the military that are probably settled there and living there now. They're retired and they're, they're enjoying their, this uh, Rome away from Rome, so to speak, in Philippi. Right? So, if you're Paul and you're about to write a letter to Rome. Might there be a little concern? I mean, to Philippi. Just a little concern. It's like, hey guys, I love you. I miss you. And by the way, I'm currently shackled to a Roman guard. Yeah, apparently I, uh, I might be a cause for harm to the Roman Empire. Um, I am on the Roman, Rome's most wanted list. Sorry about that. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even come at it that way at all. He says that I am here because of Christ. I am in prison for Christ, and it is for the benefit, the advancement of the gospel. He is reaching out to people who, not all of them, but a good portion of them, probably they love Rome. And he's under arrest by Rome. So we have to think about Paul's situation and how he's actually going to communicate to this particular audience that's mixed, okay? The next thing he does is he says, I know you guys like your citizenship, so I'm going to use this one word. We talked about this. Let your manner of life be. There's this, in your Bibles, it'll say something like that. That is one word in Greek, and that word really is talking about citizenship. It's like being a good citizen, a citizen worthy, worthy of what? Paul says, the gospel. 
So you have this twisting, a kind of a redefinition of what citizenship means to these people in Philippi. The one who's in shackles is saying, hey, I want you to think about this differently. And, and for, uh, from our purposes, we need to think about how Philippi began. You have to go back to the, the stories in Acts and recognize that there are three people. There's three stories we heard about, right? One is Lydia, who's a businesswoman, who likely, we don't know for sure, but she probably had good means. She might have been wealthy. She invites Paul and his crew into her house, right? So you have likely a Roman citizen, right? Because she, she's kind of known. It, maybe not, but we're not sure. Then you have the demonic slave girl. Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl. She's definitely not a Roman citizen, right? And then finally, you have a Philippian jailer. You remember the story where an earthquake happens and the jail is blown open and the guard's ready to kill himself because he figures everyone's run away and Paul says, no, 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 no. We've just been singing sweet hymns and songs here. Don't kill yourself. And he says, how can I be saved? And Paul goes to his home and their whole family is saved. You have these three very different people. Some that probably have citizenship, others that do not. Some that are wealthy and some that are not. So how is it that one would actually live a life that is worthy of the gospel and be unified? And it's important now to understand, I mean, there's, there are these weird relationships in the, in the ancient world. You may have heard these words, patron-client, or like a friendship relationship. These are actually official things where in a patron-client relationship, there was someone who clearly was more powerful and the other person was not. So the, the lower person would promote their patron, right? And the patron would protect the client and give them benefits and, and provide for them so that it was this mutual relationship of reciprocity. There are also these ones that were equal. They were called friendships like we have today, but a little bit different, a little bit more formal, where literally it was reciprocity, we are for each other. We are better together. So we do these things. I give, you receive, you give, I receive. And if you break that cycle, it would be bad. So Paul is in this, he's speaking into this environment and he knows, well, I got slaves and citizens. I've got the rich. I've got the poor. I need to tell them you need to be unified. And that means that you need to look at citizenship differently. Okay. But how are they do, to do this? How will the wealthy and the poor actually coexist together? Not just coexist, but thrive in this environment that's difficult. He points them to Jesus. His very first example. And if you notice, this story about Jesus is not kind of not your typical. You don't see a lot of the salvation language and stuff like that. It basically, Paul is using Jesus as an example. He says to the people, he says, hey, you need to be of one mind. You need to be standing firm in one spirit. And you need to be, don't, don't think so highly of yourself. Think of others. There's a humility that, that we have. In fact, he says, don't be self, um, it's self-ambitious and conceited. And it's a very interesting thing. The Greek word behind the word conceit actually could be translated, you might have it, if anyone has a King James, it might say vainglory. But it also could be empty glory. Kinodoxia. Only reason I bring that up is Paul uses Jesus as an example when he says, hey, have this mind among yourselves, right? Which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. In the incarnation, God 
through the Son, the second person, becomes human. So his, his deity and his humanity are both there, but there's something. It's like he stepped out of, man, just, you, you know that this is, you, I don't know how to put words to this, but you all know this is a coming down. He emptied, and, and like you could say that maybe, maybe when it says that he emptied himself, chose, that this is like a he emptied himself, and, and you see that where did he go? Oh, he emptied himself, he became human. But not just that. He became a servant, and a servant who would actually be obedient to death. But not just death, a slave's death, a torturous slave's death. So you see that Paul is showing you that don't be empty, don't be the one seeking after empty glory. Look at the one who empties himself as he comes down and down and down for you and for me. That's a great example, Paul. I mean, and he's showing you, okay, Jesus does not count equality with God as something to be grasped. He's not holding on to his right and privilege. He does have them with him, but it's not like it's, it's, you see that there's this willingness in the second person of the triune God who says, no, this is my, this is my obedient step. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. And he said, I won't use language that will get me in trouble. He empties himself and comes down. What might you be thinking as a citizen of Rome? What might you be thinking if you have, you have all of these rights and privileges that are yours? And Paul's using this example. And he doesn't stop there. He wants to use a, a straight-up human one. So what does he do? He brings up two other guys. He says, I'm sending to, you know Timothy. I'm sending Timothy to you. And, and we have to know from other parts of Scripture how... <laughs> how good a dude Timothy was, how willing he was to work with Paul, like a son to a father, like a son to a father so much that as an adult, he'd be willing to be circumcised, not because it saved him, but it allowed him to take the gospel into places with Paul that he would not otherwise be able to do. That's a slight movement down, in my opinion. It's a hard thing to do as an adult. Then he brings up Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is the messenger from Philippi. And he says, he almost died. He got sick. He almost died bringing your gift and your message, the message of the church to me. But what does he say? He says, honor such men. Mm. So now you have an example. You have Jesus as the prime example. Then he says, hey, look at. Let me show you what humanity looks like when they actually follow this king. When they actually understand what it means to be united what it means to actually stand firm in one spirit. These two guys. Well, what about what it's not? And this is where he goes entirely on the other side and says, okay, tell you what. Let's use me as an example. I am primo numero uno Israelite. Read my resume. I have every right to take like all the glory for being a really good Israelite. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I know my tribe, which most people would not have known at that point in time. Circumcised on the eighth day, I followed all of the rules. I'm a Pharisee, so I learned under the best. I knew the law. Not only did I know the law, but I was blameless under the law. So if you consider my Israelite citizenship, I am the best of the best. 
But then he says, I count it all as loss compared to the surpassing glory of knowing my King, knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, all those things that I could claim as mine, that they're by rights, I did the work, they're mine. I could claim those. But when you compare it to the surpassing glory of Jesus, they are literally skabala, rubbish. You heard Isaac talk about this. It's kind of like poop. So, What's not worthy is, is thinking that your credentials, your rights, your privileges somehow trump your faith, the other people around you. So you see how the story is, is kind of coming together, right? Here's the perfect example. Here's, here's some dudes that are like it. Here's what you can't do. And it doesn't mean, by the way, that he would never say that my Judaism is wrong or bad, but he's saying, I don't stand on that. I stand on a different place. And then he gets to from general to specific. You might have recalled a couple of those things. Hey, don't, don't be too high on yourself. You're not that good, right? He says, hey, don't, get, don't be grumbling. That's, look at all my people. They did that. Read the Old Testament. Don't be grumblers. No. You have the king of the universe on your side. Don't be like them. But then he gets to these specifics, saying, okay, this is all the general good stuff. Now you understand this. Yodia and Syntyche, you guys are causing strife and conflict internally. I've, I've already told you, hey, you can have people coming in trying to, dis, to disrupt you and create disunity, but you guys are internal and you're doing it. And what's his solution? How do you solve this internal conflict? Well, he brings all of the people in the church together to help him, the people he knows, and he says, rejoice. That's his prescription. Rejoice. And he says it again. Rejoice. And if you're still anxious after rejoicing in what you know from your king, from that example we just talked about, the one who emptied himself, if you're rejoicing and that's still not enough and you are anxious, what do you do? You pray with thanksgiving to who? The God of peace. The one who brings peace, who removes strife, who says, no, empty glory doesn't work. Look at what I've done for you. So we've gone general to specific, and that leaves us here today to our text. This is how actually the book ends. I didn't read this part. And it goes in a slightly different angle, and it's hard to actually tell a little bit um, because the language is a little bit kind of hidden to us. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a verse many of you probably already know. But we have to realize here, when, when Paul is saying this, he's talking about this gift that Epaphroditus has brought him. Right? There's been something, there's some kind of provision or financial support or something like that that Paul has received, and he's super excited about it. But he's saying, I'm not excited about it because of, of the amount or what you've given me. I'm, I'm excited because you actually are bursting forth in generosity. You can see this actually in 2 Corinthians. It says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's where Philippi is. Uh, Thessalonica is there as well. 
For in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So you have this generous Macedonians. And Paul, as he's receiving this gift, he says, look, here's the thing, though. I have learned, and he says this twice, and this is super important for us. Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the guy who wrote a good portion of the scriptures in front of you, says, I've learned. I've learned of this. I had to learn this. I had to learn in any situation how to be content. But he also says, I have, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I don't know about you, but the secret of facing hunger and need are the things I'd love to know how to do. But he says, I know the secret of, of both sides of it. I've learned contentment. And that's how it finishes off with, I can do all things who strengthen me. And this is where I think, if we're being honest, you know people, or you have, I know I have, thrown this verse around a little bit wonky compared to where it exists here. Because it feels like it's all about strength, right? It feels like it's just, a, it's power. Got the power. It's like, you know, your buddy is getting a new job, and they say, I, I, I got this. I can, do, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or, or maybe your buddy says, you can't lift as much, you can't bench press as much as me. And you say, well, I can do all things through him who, you see? And I, I, I'd suggest those are inappropriate ways of using it. However, in this context, I'll show you one that's a little bit closer. Don't, I don't want you to shift in your seat. I don't want you to nod. Don't even move your heads. But you know that you've used this about your spouse. Your spouse asks you to go take the trash out for the fifth time. And you, as you're walking, you're like, I can do all things you strengthen me. Right? Or... Your spouse comes home late from work, the fifth, sixth time, and you're like, I can do all things through Christ. And I think that is actually more like it in the sense of it's about endurance, not power. I can endure the situation I am, whatever the situation in it. And the reason is, is I'm not trusting on self-sufficiency. I'm not trusting on being sufficient in myself. It's him who strengthens me. He's the one who brings peace. He's the one who brings contentment. And he's the one who actually meets my need. So that's the context in which he's talking about this contentment. He continues, that it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. It'll be, it seems to me that Paul's basically saying, you guys are super generous, none of those other people were. Right? You guys joined me in this giving and receiving thing. This is, that's, by the way, language of that friendship-type relationship. But I think Paul is trying to walk a very careful line because he's trying to establish that there's a citizenship, and it has nothing to do with patron-client. It doesn't have to do with this, this earthly cultural friendship that he's talking about. It comes from somewhere else. He talks about sharing in his trouble and entering into partnership. And you guys might be familiar with the, the word that sits underneath these. Have you ever heard the word koinonia? But I'm pretty sure if I took church potluck and put it up in there, it would not fit. It's not what he's talking about. When we think koinonia, I think we think of a very reduced version. Paul's talking about sharing in trouble, partnership in need. And in fact, the whole letter starts this way. Back in the first chapter, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because 
of your partnership in the gospel, that's koinonia in the gospel, from the first day until now. So when we think of this partnership, Paul's trying to cast it in a new light. He's like, look, I'm not your patron. I'm not just simply a friend. I'm someone who wants you to abound. I'm more like a father. I want you to abound in love and knowledge and discernment. I want to see your progress and joy in the faith. And he continues, not that I seek the gift. This is where he's trying to be careful. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This is almost, this is basically, account, who are accountants in here? This is accounting language. It's basically, I want this to be hitting your bottom line. I want this to be basically coming out on your ledger. This fruit from you doing this for me, I don't need it. But I'm not going to reject it because that could cause a whole lot of problems. What I'm going to do is say, look, this is great. It is, it is fruitful. It, I see this as good. And you can tell because how it goes from here. So he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. There's this priestly language in this. This is temple language. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father to uh, be glory forever and ever. Paul is being really wise. He basically says, you know what? You know who your real patron is? And it's the same thing I've been saying this whole time. The one who should be at the center of your contentment. The one who should be at the center of all of your thinking. The one who unites you. The creator of heaven and earth. He's your patron. So when you do something, if it be for me or for someone else, if you come alongside people within your own church, that's fruitfulness that I, I can't pay you for. That. I'm not big enough to pay you for that. Says the God of the universe. He's the one in Christ Jesus. And he finishes, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This isn't an unusual closing except for one thing. Especially those of Caesar's household. This is like a little like, Paul is in chains he said the imperial guard is hearing the gospel, and now he's saying, hey, look, there are saints in Caesar's household. The very place of power in the world, they now love Jesus. So it shows that his taking all of his, if you think of what Paul has done, all of his privilege and rights and the things he's earned as being a Pharisee and, and like a top Israelite, as well as his, his Roman citizenship, he's taken all of these things, all of this knowledge, packaged it together, and you see his own demise from a worldly view. He's in chains. I mean, I think he's thinking he might die. We see that earlier on in the book. And he says, no, 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 no. There's something else going on. Caesar's household can tell you. Now, those could just be slaves, it's okay. But the point is, Paul saying, the gospel is going forth. And you know what? From me, what it required? Don't think so seriously about all the things I've earned. Don't think so seriously, because there's going to come a time. And you can imagine this, right? Imagine in the Philippian church that you have a kind of a wealthy person in there, a citizen, and they have a friendship relationship, or even they're a client of a particular patron, and that patron or friend has a slave, and that slave just happens to go to the Philippian church. 
Do you think that that friend is going to have, or that, that client is going to have the, the courage, the boldness to say, hey, don't treat your slave that way. That will cost that person. Do you see? Do you see the, just how this works? And Paul's saying you've got to be able to put off those things. You use them. You use them for God's glory and the care of another. But you have to be willing to let it go. Don't hold on to your rights. Use them. Use them for the good of the gospel with the Lord at the center. And this is where he gets, yeah, he's talking about contentment. Oh, man. And we are a nation who loves our rights and privileges. Um, I mean, simple, I'm going to tell you simple things. My right to two-day delivery, <laughs> I love it. And I, I'm this, this is a bad thing. I love it. I can order something, and within a couple days, I got exactly what I want. It's probably dog food, which I'm not even eating. I don't even like my dog that much. But that right, that ability to order and have brings some level of contentment and warmth in my soul. What is it for you? What's your poison? Maybe for you, it's, it's wealth. Maybe like all of your contentment comes from like your stocks and your bonds or the, the business deals you're doing. Maybe it comes from beauty. Maybe it's, it's how much you work out to make sure you look great. Maybe it's approval of others or fame. I want to tell you a story about someone who actually comes to this church. Um, because I think it's a powerful statement on what contentment should probably look more like? Because I can tell you my contentment is, I'm not a good example. My contentment is driven by a lot of wrong things. But in this story, I'm not the hero, but I want you to listen very carefully. There's a gentleman here who is from the country of Iran. And in Iran, it's not good to be a Christian. The leadership there definitely don't like Christians. So he became a Christian while in Iran, and he actually started having Bible studies with a small group of people. And one, one like holiday, he came to Mexico on holiday to meet his family he, that's here, and he spent time there. He got a call from his, his parents. His parents said, don't come back. They've arrested all of your friends who you used to meet with. So he spent about a year in Mexico just getting whatever he could to survive. And at one point, he got tired of that. He hired a coyote who brought him across the border into the U.S. And he immediately turned himself in to Border Patrol and served in detention for, I think, six months until they allowed him to come out. They, they give you an ankle monitor and stuff like that. So he was baptized here a while back. And I met, ran into him. He needed help getting places. I took him to San Francisco once to take his ankle bracelet off. Like these are things I did not want to do. Let me be really honest. I would much rather sit on my couch and watch whatever or play the video game or whatever I'm doing. And then one day he says, hey, can you drive me down? Down to the border? I need to go to court. I'm like, oh, a ride? So we're going we're gonna to drive six, seven hours we're going to have to stay overnight to go to his trial. And this is, so if you don't know what it is, it's called a removal trial. And I, I, I'm going to be real, I didn't want to go. I had people telling me, man, it's a hard thing to do. 
Um, and I, I don't know why. And again, this is not, this is no good in me. I actually went. Probably for prideful or bitter. Re- I mean, I just did, I went. I'm like, I'm giving him a ride. Okay, fine. I get down to that trial and discover that I'm going to be a witness. Because the trial, the courts don't realize how Christianity works. The whole point of that trial is to remove him and send him back to his home country. If he's removed, he gets sent back. And they asked me one simple question. They said, hey, do you have to be baptized to be a Christian, to become a Christian? And I said, no, there, there are actually branches of Christianity where that's true. That one answer to that one question kept him from having, to being sent back to Iran. One answer. How many other obediences have I missed by just, just not showing up? He could have been back. I want to, oh, I'm going to read this to you. He sent me a text a while ago about his friends who are in, who are still in Iran in prison. And he says this, my sister in Iran is in contact with the family of one of those who is in prison. They torture them mentally and physically. They've been sentenced to 10 years in prison, but the government does not release them easily, and they have to give up their belief and not engage in religious and Christian activities. After serving these 10 years, and a fine, and a hundred lashes, but because I know these friends, they will never return to Islam. They will never lose their faith in Christ, even if they want to execute them. I believe in their true faith. Always pray for them. My friend who goes here can never go back to his country, which he loves. He loves his country. He's from Tehran. He, he, his dad operates a, a cow farm. He's like, I loved that. I loved my family. But he's found contentment in a place that he doesn't call home. And he actually, man, he calls me, my, his family here. And I'm like, I don't think I understand what that word means when you say it. So I ask you, you will, the likelihood is 99.9% of you will never experience that kind of loss, that kind of need. But I ask you this simply, where are you finding your contentment? Because Paul has a particular idea that he's waiting for his, his Christian brothers and sisters to get in line with and recognize is that everything that you have comes from God and it is to be used for him and for his people. It is this movement. It is this pattern. It is down then up and you can't make yourself go up. You, we know this from two stories in the Bible. The garden and the Tower of Babel. You, by your own power, you cannot make it up. Jesus is exalted by God the Father, and the God the Father gets the glory because of it. He is the one who lifts us up. He is the one who's already done that by the humiliation of Jesus. Jesus is exalted and carries his people with him. We already have all the sustenance that we need. Now, let me, I don't want you to get me wrong. There are some of you that have need, like true need in here. And we should be together filling that need whatever it costs us. So I don't want to think my, my citizenship is more important than someone else's need. I don't want to think my rights and privileges are more important than someone else's need because I'm trying to live this. And I'm not good at it. 
I got lucky with my friend. And this is why we go to the cross. So we're going to spend a minute. This cross is here for a reason. We know that above it, God had foreordained the fact that the Son would be on it. And we know that with God the Father and the Son, there are people with His Spirit who have come and submitted themselves to it. And maybe, just maybe, one of you have had someone like that. Because my friend, if I'm being really honest, he may think I'm his hero. He's my hero. Because I can't imagine finding contentment in what he has done. I can't imagine chasing my Christianity down with such a hard, determined, persevering way. But you have somebody You have somebody who actually was important in your life. And you know, they submitted to the king and they showed you what that looked like. They were an example. So we're going to take a minute. I just want you, if you're comfortable, say their name out loud. But we're just going to take a minute and you're going to think and what you're going to do is thank you Jesus for blank. I'm sure you guys have people. Maybe it's a parent. My mom prayed for me a ton, me and my brother. And I honestly think that was... Very effective. You might have a parent. You might have someone else. I know there's another guy in here who I want to thank for for just how core he's been in this church. His name is Mike Zukowski. That dude lifted up everyone else. He knew the pattern. He knew the pattern. So we come to the cross knowing the pattern down, and he exalts. We come down. We use everything we have to lay out before the, his kingdom for the benefit of his, his glory and to all the people around us. And he exalts us up. And this is the picture we have at the cross. You have the king of glory who by the same Roman empire and his own people of Israel, he sent to death, but not just any death, a slave's torturous death. We're going to stand as we take communion. We do this every week because we are participating in a table that we don't belong at. We've been granted this through his blood, through his goodness. We've been adopted into a family because of his goodness. We have been ransomed. We've been bought back from the marketplace. We have been propitiated through his blood. And so he would say, take this. This is my body which is broken for you. And on the same night of his betrayal, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And we always say this, this is how we actually lay down our allegiance to the king because we know that this was spilled for us. That we could go and invite others to know him that we could use everything at our disposal for his glory and for the benefit of his people.